Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans, and with me today is Professor Faisal Ahmed. He has a fantastic new book called Conquest and Rents. So, the overarching claim is that Muslim societies are more likely to be authoritarian and marred in civil war. The typical Muslim society is twice as likely to experience a civil war with a thousand battle deaths a year. And the big question is why? So many different scholars have suggested explanations like Islamic culture, Islamic war, the Ulema State Alliance, and oil. But really, they're inadequate because I think the brilliance of Professor Ahmed's book is that he says, well, they don't explain Muslim countries' heterogeneity. Why are some countries like Indonesia actually democratic? Why are other Muslim dictatorships so durable while others have erupted into a war? So I'm so, so glad he's here with us today. Thank you very, very much for joining us. I mean, this was one of definitely the, one of the best books I've read this year. So thank you. Great. Thank you, Alice. It's very nice to be here and to uh, chat with you today about my book. Okay. So, you argue that where Islam spread via conquest, political authority was consolidated. Can you tell me more about that? So, the idea here is um, when Muslim armies sort of expanded to spread their religion, um, in the areas in which they conquered, they needed to engage in governing practices, right? Um, in the initial period, they sort of had garrison cities where they sort of surrounded the city um, and then sort of let the sort of uh, indigenous sort of population continue on with their activities um, and they didn't even necessarily have to convert to Islam as long as they just sort of acknowledged the rule of of the conquerors. Over time, what happened is that slowly many of the population started to um, convert to Islam. Um, but more interesting, sort of like as the empire sort of expanded, there was an incentive to sort of centralize control. Uh, and so one way of doing this was to you know, exert greater military presence. Um, and so many of the sort of the early caliphates starting around sort of the 8th, 9th century, no, mostly the 9th, 10th century, sorry, started importing in these sort of slave soldiers as a way of maintaining political authority. And how did they compensate the slave soldiers? So they engaged in this sort of practice called what they call ikta, where they parceled out the land. And so... Um, the soldiers, the Malmuks, um, sort of had property rights over the land, and then they could tax the uh, workers on the, well, the laborers on the land, and so they got revenue f from that, and that was sort of their income. What was an attractive feature for um, the caliph uh, during this period was the fact that the Malmuks never actually controlled the land. Um, when they sort of retired um, or they passed away, the land would then go back to the caliph and then the next cycle of Mamluks would come in. And so it was sort of like, you know, a way for the state to still maintain its property, um, but then sort of give, you know, assign the property rights to the Mamluk soldiers so they can then tax the local population and generate their revenue this way. So what are the consequences of having these Mamluk institutions of slave soldiers and ICTA land grants? So what this sort of basically did is... Um, it ties sort of the political, well, so, so sort of the military incentives of the soldiers. They were there to maintain political control over the, the territories, um, and sort of tied it to the state, right? Um, because their livelihood depended on the caliph basically granting them um, the control of these property rights. Um, in turn, the uh, you know what the caliphate get, then sort of 
had the military to sort of maintain political authority. An attractive feature of having the Mamluks was the fact that they typically came in from the Caucasus, and so they were sort of an alien population that never sort of developed roots and connections with the local population. So there was less of an incentive for sort of the Mamluk soldiers to sort of maybe align with the local population to overthrow the caliphs, right? So it was a sort of a nice way of sort of having this sort of power ranging, uh, power sharing agreement between the caliphs and um, uh, the uh, soldiers. And what I like about this argument is that this forestalls the possibility of an independent bourgeoisie. If you don't have inherited wealth, if everything is owned by the sultan, then he maintains control. And then as you show in your book, these authoritarian Mamluk institutions continued under some subsequent regimes like the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. And this system of indirect rule was also propped up by colonialism. So once it's set in stone, then it continues for centuries afterwards. That's right. I mean, sort of, it was sort of a cost-benefit analysis of sort of subsequent, um, you know, empires, right? Sort of the end of sort of the classical Islamic empires, and then the Ottoman Empire when it took over, um, they, you know, took over these territories, and they had the option of us sort of instituting their own sort of governing regimes or just sort of co-opting the existing ones, and so that's what they did. Uh, same thing with sort of the British when they went into, you know. Like like modern day Jordan or like modern day like Pakistan or uh, Bangladesh and things like that, where these um, institutions still existed. So within India, for instance, the Mughal Empire sort of had versions of ICTA. It was slightly different, but it was the same basic idea where the military class basically owned the property and they would tax their uh, 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 farmers. Okay, but now I want to push back slightly. So I'm with you that there are certain Mamluk innovations, right? But wasn't Islamic authoritarianism mediated by prior institutions? Like, can you point to any place that only became authoritarian after the Islamic conquests? What I'm saying is, weren't all the places conquered by Islamic armies already authoritarian? And they're just building on that prior authoritarianism. So... In sort of this period, there's no really concept of what we think of democratic states per se. Now, many of the societies in which they conquered, um, especially sort of as you go into like Central uh, Asia, um, there was no centralized state per se. It was still very sort of tribal. Um, well, there were still city states. There were their ancient city states, right, all over the place. So across Mesopotamia, the, you know, mm-hmm. all these places had strong authoritarian, like Assyria, right. That was a very authoritarian, hierarchical empire. Yeah, but there were also societies that weren't. So, um, sort of like modern day um, Saudi Arabia, they were just basically nomadic tribes back then. There wasn't a centralized state per se. Sure. In, in sort of what we consider. So if you go into, um, you know, there was obviously sort of like the Persian Empire, which was sort of more centralized, but parts of the Arabian Peninsula were not in that way. Parts of North, you know, modern-day North African countries, they were tribal in that sense. Um, and so there wasn't a centralized state per se. Um, and it was authoritarian in the sense that there was a hierarchy, but it wouldn't sort of be a centralized authoritarian state that we sort of conceive of today. Ah, right? but let, let, um, may, may, let me... So... Okay, so I totally agree that peripheral areas like pastoral Kazakhstan, right? The Central Asian steppe. That was peripheral, that was never under state authority. And similarly, there was much of Saudi Arabia that was never under state control. But that persisted right up until the, the 20th century. Like there were large parts of Saudi Arabia that were not under state control. You had, you know, no, 
nomadic federations of tribes that were under their own control. You don't, so wherever you, I think throughout history, wherever you have pastoral nomadism, those people have always evaded state control, whether it is the Amazir escaping into the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, the Kazakhs escaping into the steppe. But where you have rich, fertile valleys, oases like the Nile in Egypt, like Fergana Valley in Uzbekistan, those places were had authoritarian city-states long before Islam and continued afterwards. So those central areas were always authoritarian, no? Right, but so there's evidence in the in the in the book, and it sort of tries to sort of quantify this statistically by looking at measures of what we call of state centralization. So you know, social scientists have come up with these measures, um, and sort of what the book shows is that areas in which there was sort of the spread of uh, Muslim armies, um, those states became more centralized during the period of conquest. Um, and so yeah, so while there were these sort of authoritarian tribal areas, right? Um, they became sort of more authoritarian, if if you want to sort of talk about, like, but, but the structures became more centralized in, in the sense that they were now, um, you know, um, they weren't disparate tribes per se. There was a bit more of a sort of community leader and sort of structure that way that made them more centralized, right? Um, I am apologizing so, if I've forgotten. Are you saying that there's a part of the book that compares centralization before and after the Islamic conquest, you have you have a measure of state centralization before and after. So there, yeah. So um, some economic historians have sort of done work looking at measures of state centralization, uh, which is so uh, is based on sort of entries from the. Uh, as I'm getting into the weeds now about the data. Um, from the Britannica encyclopedias, um, and so they have these sort of objective measures of like, you know, was there a central government here? Who ruled it? Was it foreign-based? And there's an index what of state date? centralization. What date? Um, so the data, I think, now goes back to like 3000 BC or something like that. For So so, so an interesting feature of this is trying to map um, maybe these measures of state centralization to, the, to states that the didn't The one global database I can think of that has uh, data on state centralization is like the Seshet database and they put like early state formation in Mesopotamia long before Islam that's right yeah so so um, so so the data set that I use is by Potterman um, he's an economic historian at, I think at Brown University um, and his measure, I think the latest one, I think goes back to like 3000 BC. Uh, yeah, and so what this shows you, for instance, and there's some parts in, so like in in um, chapter four of the book, I sort of explore this and I show you, for instance, that, um, you know, within the, sort of the territories that were conquered by Muslim armies, they varied, for instance, on, on the sort of levels of priests pre-Islamic state centralization, right? And so you had areas sort of like in modern-day Iran, which is sort of more centralized relative to, say, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Central Asia. Uh, and what the uh, analysis there shows you, for instance, is that even in these regions, they became a slightly more centralized, but it became much bigger in sort of like Central Asia. Um, and so this is just sort of one of, you know, sort of one sort of transparent way of trying to measure state centralization. Yeah, it's a very difficult... back on that. Like, like in the nomadic periphery of Central Asia, in the for the Kazakhs, yes, they converted to Islam, but you, they never, they retained all their 
shamanistic practices, they continued to have animal representations in their burials, they continued to drink alcohol, like they did a lot of really haram things, right? But it was only in the valleys, only in the areas that were authoritarian before Islam, that you had conversion to uh, when the Uzbeks settled in the valleys, they converted to endogamous clans, for example. Whereas everywhere that was peripheral, like for example, one thing I find telling is that in the rugged regions of the Atlas Mountains, um, the Amazir language continued. So in 1990, 65% of Moroccans still spoke Amazir. To me, that is an indication of linguistic and cultural isolation mediated by geography. No? So what you're uh, sort of picking up here is um, the fact that many of these societies still maintain their cultural uh, sort of uh, characteristics that they had prior to the spread of Islam. And I sort of think you're sort of conflating state centralization with sort of conversion to Islam, right? And that's not what I sort of have in mind. I'm thinking of state centralization as, for instance, the ability of, first of all, you know, having a central government that's able to sort of engage in like the delivery of certain services, like providing national security, right? Which is sort of what the Islamics, uh, uh, the conquest societies did. The ability to engage in sort of like uh, taxation and extracting resources, right? So that can be independent of whether or not the society converted. And it's definitely the case that sort of in the first like four, uh, three, four, five hundred years of the Islamic um, uh, uh, conquest, many societies did not convert to Islam, right? In the way that we sort of, you know, uh, following the practices and things like that. That what didn't happen until, you know, past 1100 or so. Uh, I mean, so if, you know, if you sort of contrast a bit to sort of like West African Muslim societies, there it was the case that basically the elites converted to Islam, and they did so for, for a variety of different reasons, f to gain access to like the trade networks, but the regular citizens did not, and they still sort of remained pagan, right? So um, I think sort of what you're identifying is correct, that like these societies maintained a lot of their sort of pre-Islamic um, cultural features, language, certain practices. But as you know, I think what I'm trying to do is separate the fact that well, the way that these states were governed, in the sense of having a you know military apparatus that can sort of make you know maintain political order, or have a government that's able to sort of engage in in certain forms of uh, taxation, right? Um, that was sort of absent in the pre-Islamic period, and so you sort of see that occur as these societies get conquered by these Muslim armies. Yeah, and I think I can agree in some respect, for example, um, Persian institutions of government spread, like with the, by, by, like writing, for example, as David, David Sasevich argues, enabled uh, rulers to calculate um, likely crop yields, and therefore they could tax at the right level. So when you have Persians spreading their writing and their institutions of government, you can expand um, government authority. So I totally buy that. Like, you know, government isn't just entailed by geography. It's something, it's an innovation that we've culturally developed and it can spread. Yeah, so I, I, I can accept that you could see some change over time, totally. Okay, here's another question for you. So, so, so I, I can buy there is some change over time. Okay, here's another question. Um, Islam, so your argument is that where Islam spread via conquest, they strengthened this authoritarianism, and then it persists today to the extent that it's propped up by rents, like oil rents or foreign aid. Could you explain that to us? <coughs> so, yeah, so the argument is that sort of many of these countries 
uh, societies were ultimately sort of colonized by European powers, um, and sort of at their independence in sort of the 1950s, 1960s, um, many of them retained their authoritarian structures. Um, and so the, the starting point of the book is sort of to, to realize that like much of the, sort of the developing world in the 1960s was authoritarian, was non-democratic. Yeah. But um, after the 1960s, especially in the 1970s, um, many parts of the non-Muslim world became increasingly democratic. So the question is, is like, why didn't sort of... Um, democracy spread to, you know, many Muslim countries. I mean, some countries did experience democracy. Pakistan had periods of democracy. Bangladesh had periods of democracy and things like that. Uh, and so the argument there is that um, the ability of these leaders to maintain their small um, um, governing coalitions is is facilitated by having a lot of what I call it rents, but basically non-tax government revenue. So that's very common, for instance, in, in the oil-producing countries in the Persian Gulf, where as a result of having a lot of oil revenue, the governments don't have to be tax their domestic population and can be less accountable, right? And it's the same sort of logic holds with foreign aid, that many of these countries during the 1970s received a lot of foreign aid, uh, which allowed their governments to not have to engage in sort of taxation and sort of become more accountable. Um, when those rents start to dry up, it becomes much harder for those governments to maintain the cohesion of their, um, first of all, but their governing coalition, but also to have the repressive capacity to stop opposition groups from taking over. And so in periods in which sort of these uh, rents decline, we see outbursts of more political violence in the sort of the, in the most extreme form civil war, but you also see other bouts of like violence as well. Okay, I love this. So first of all, I want to say how much I really appreciate your book, and I think your book is so unique, in that one, you're highlighting this initial heterogeneity at the beginning, conquest or not, and then this more modern heterogeneity, rents or not. And I, I don't know many political science books that do that, and I think it's tremendous and fantastic, and you should be congratulated, and I will hereafter sing your praises. But, let me ask a question. So in focusing on these material factors like oil rents and foreign aid, I wonder what you think about the role of religious legitimacy. Like um, throughout, the, throughout history, you know, rulers in the Middle East and North Africa have claimed a divine authority. And, you know, European rulers have done that. So, so did China, you know, the emperor claimed mandate of heaven. But we see this very, very strongly in, the, in, the, in Muslim countries like... Um, you know, in Saudi Arabia, the leading imam praises MBS. They say, you know, he is the greatest guy ever. And that's broadcast to millions of Muslims, right, on the Friday sermon. So I wonder how important it is to have this continued divine backing. You know, this goes back to Ahmed Kuru's work on the Sulema State Alliance. You know, how much is that sort of cultural legitimacy and acceptance important in authoritarianism today? So, um... So far, our discussion is sort of focused on, at least in the historical period, looking at the role of, of the sultan, the, the, the caliph, and and the mamluks, sort of the soldier, soldiers, right? So the the repressive capacity of the state. The book also talks about the fact that by 1100 or so, um, you know, religion became sort of like the practice of religion became very important. And what happened is that many of these sort of caliphs. Um, introduced Sharia law, and so that elevated the sort of significance and, and prominence of clerics in day-to-day -day sort of decision-making. As a result of that compromise, uh, these clerics recognized um, these leaders as being legitimate, 
right? Being backed by, yeah. uh, you know, Islamic texts and stuff like that, right? And so this is sort of, you know, consistent with Ahmed Kuru's work, right? Saying that the... And, uh, and also sort of Jared Rubin's work looking at sort of the uh, formation of this sort of... Um, Ulema state alliance. In the modern day, I, I, I think this really still matters a lot. And so you, yeah. you see that many of these authoritarian re, ru, rulers, I mean, they need the money, the rents to sort of prop up the regime in many ways, but having the legitimacy of the clerics matters. And this is sort of why they grant certain, um, you know, policy platforms to these clerics um, and sort of veto power in certain types of government decisions uh, and so that matters a lot, right? Um, and it's also because then the clerics don't say that these rulers are like, you know, non-Islamic in, in, in such a way. So I think that's a very important part of it. Um, you know, I think in societies, in sort of Muslim societies in which um, clerics don't have a, a, a so much prominent voice, you could, you could make the argument, for instance, that they may tend to be a bit more democratic because they have they don't have to worry about that, you know, if you want to think about a constraint on their governing that what they need to get the... Uh, um, legitimacy coming from the um, clerics. Okay, awesome, awesome. Okay. So now you have another variable, cohesiveness. Tell me about cohesiveness and why does it matter? So it's, it's this notion, so in the book there is an argument where I call institutional cohesiveness, right? Uh, thinking about the ways in which societies are able to basically reconcile differences over sharing government revenue. Um, and so in sort of more cohesive societies, there's ways for opposition groups to get along with other groups um, to sort of distribute state resources. Autocracy is, is sort of one form of sort of you know, less cohesive institutions. Others could be things like uh, ethnic fragmentation, so like more you know, diverse societies with more ethnic, ethnic groups often have a hard time deciding how to distribute state resources, and so they're sort of less cohesive societies. Um, and so in the book, I sort of make the argument that um, Muslim societies develop these authoritarian structures in such, uh, and as a result, the way that the goods, sort of the government revenues were distributed weren't sort of egalitarian in that way, and so, so sort of they're less cohesive. Um, the, the book sort of has a theory that's not necessarily exclusive to just explaining Muslim societies. It could be used to sort of explain other societies in which there's these sort of non-cohesive types of, of, of institutions that share state resources. So that's a general idea behind sort of institutional uh, cohesiveness. Okay, and so cohesiveness matters is because when rents reduce, then if you have these fragmented societies where people don't want to share resources, then you see the eruption of civil war. And the book gives the example of Somalia. I would give another example of post-Soviet Tajikistan, which is precisely your model, right? You lose the rents from the USSR, you have the eruption of civil war. And I think you already know what I'm going to say to push back, which is my personal hypothesis about uh, the lack of cohesiveness or lower cohesiveness and the geographical heterogeneity is that where Islam spread via Arab armies, then we saw Arabization and there was prestige bias. People adopted the Arabic language as in Uzbek what is now Uzbekistan, and they also adopted cousin marriage. And so across the region conquered by under the caliphs, we see very high levels of cousin marriage. And this is a form of Arabization in Saudi Arabia. Cousin marriage is now 50%. But I don't think this is in contradiction to any of your theory. It's just a slightly different story about how we get to your results. Um, no, I agree. I mean, there's a, 
sort of strong correlation between where Islam spread via sort of Muslim armies and the sort of other cultural attributes that might come with sort of the sort of um, Arabic version of, of, of the way Islam, so the Wahhabi version. Um, in the book, I sort of address this sort of statistically by thinking of what happens when we sort of exclude these countries that have these features from the analysis. Um, and the results sort of like the basic story still holds. So it's not necessarily sense, at least from a statistical sense, um, it's not necessarily, you know, um, the results still hold when you sort of explain. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It's, it's just a question of how we get that, that, that you've described. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's just like, um, yeah, I mean, sort of like that's definitely sort of associated and correlated, right? And that's, I mean, this is why it's sort of, sort of it's challenging, right? To sort of differentiate, you know, um, you know, the, this notion that, I mean, the book starts from the premise is that scholars have identified that there's a relationship between Islam and lack of democracy, right? And so the question is, 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 it, is it religion? And the book says, no, it's not religion. Um, it could be cultural practices, right? Um, and the book sort of discusses that and tries to present statistical evidence to sort of discount that. Um, what the book tries to show you is that, no, it's really about sort of like institutional aspects that come with governing these societies, right? And that has sort of what, what's sort of persisted over time. Um, and so um, the very, you know, the, the factors that you're uh, raising are sort of valid factors that um, could be at play and it sort of is up to the analyst to sort of try to find ways that can skirt around that or find... Um, to show that the, their argument holds even when... The, okay, can I give a counterexample? Sure. So, your argument is that where Islam did not spread via conquest, um, then they're more cohesive and you see more prospects for democratization. But how do you explain Malaysia, right? Because Islam spread via Sufis, via merchants, yet on VDEM, the sort of global indicator of democratization, <laughs> Malaysia scores as almost as authoritarian as Morocco. The Articles 295 of the Malaysian Penal Code provide penalties for those who commit offences against religion. A number of provinces in Malaysia have introduced very strict laws. Doesn't it seem to be a bit difficult for your model? So, it depends. So, I'm. It depends on how you define democracy, right? In the sense okay. that Malaysia has okay. elections and way, like a competitive form of governance. Now, if the fact that they're electing religious, you know, religiously conservative government, that's that's part of their sort of electoral process, right? Um, you know, the, the the book sort of talks about the fact that Malaysia, like Indonesia, um, like Bangladesh, are areas in which sort of, but basically, you know, Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, because the religion spread there through Sufis and through trade, the sort of institutional imprint of sort of Mamluk institutions was not there. It doesn't mean that these societies can't still be authoritarian. I mean, Indonesia was authoritarian under Suharto, right? Yeah, but sure. when um, but when he was ousted, they sort of transitioned to a sort of more democratic form of governance, right? And so the measures of democracy that I'm using is looking, you know, takes into account like political competition, if there's an elections. And so the VDEM measure may be, I'm not sure which VDEM measure you're referring to here, but um, it may be picking up these types of features that, yeah, these societies are choosing to have certain parts so of I the law. So I think VDEM that... has like a number of indicators. It's got like repression of civil society. It's not about, you know, does it have an electoral democracy? It's about like repression of civil society, repression of free speech, repression mm -hmm. of journalists. 
like Malaysia scores on a number, like VDEM has a number of indicators like liberal democracy, participatory democracy, and on every single one of those measures, Malaysia scores really badly for democracy, whereas Indonesia seems to do quite well. And I find that quite interesting, like why do Indonesia and Malaysia differ? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there might be other reasons that will sort of explain that specific, you know, difference, right? Um, my theory won't account for that, right? I'm just, you know, I'm sort of interested in sort of explaining one sort of like the Muslim versus non-Muslim distinction, right? And then sort of the temporal distinction across time, right? And, but, there, you know, it's, it's sort of like comparing, you know, Bangladesh to Pakistan, right? Um, there are many ways in which they're similar, but then... Um, you know, in, in Pakistan, for instance, um, um, clerics play a more prominent role in governance and day-to-day decision-making than sort of Bangladesh, right? Um, What's your theory about that? Why, why is blasphemy so heavily persecuted in, in pa- Pakistan? Um, well, I mean, so, so my theory would say uh, that Pakistan was a society that was Sort of 85% of its population uh, of its modern day territory was conquered by Muslim armies, and they have a more institutionalized imprint of um, of the Mamluk institutions. Bangladesh, being farther to the east, doesn't have that, and so in the, in the data, it's actually like very very low, right? Yeah. So that might be the reason. Um, there's also like I mean, there's like cultural aspects of it as well that might seep into the fact that you know um, the way that Islam is practiced in Pakistan is slightly different than. Um, Okay. Well, I have a new question for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so many countries like Indonesia have seen a rise in religiosity and a rise in madrasas, people in this, going to school in madrasas, people actually favoring more Sharia law. Like that seems to be a grassroots thing that people want more Sharia law. People want a strong, many people want a stronger role of religion in public life. Why do you think countries like Indonesia have recently become more religious? I mean, I th- this may, uh, you, may, you, can, you know, the, the same thing could be argued for like the United States, for instance, that there are certain aspects of the country that have become more religious over time. Um, I mean, part of it could be just like economic, right? That, um, um, you know, as they modernize, they want to get closer um, another hypothesis is sort of, you know, in general, sort of like across Muslim societies, they've become more religious. This is this is not necessarily unique to Indonesia, um, and that might sort of explain why people are becoming more sort of attuned to religious practices and things like that. Um, yeah, I don't know enough about the Indonesian context. I don't know what specifically. There's a fun Indonesia, paper. There's a fun paper by Ben Marks and others, and Sambazi and others. And they argue that the introduction of compulsory secular primary schooling in Indonesia triggered a backlash. That the Muslim groups felt affronted and they wanted to protect their religious practices. So more people started enrolling in madrasas. And I sort of wonder, reading that paper, if there is this, for example, if in many Muslim countries, you're accustomed to these blasphemy laws, accustomed to this idea that Sharia law should have precedence. When you see a threat coming with secularization, that can trigger a backlash. Um, so I was speaking to, so for example, maybe the Soviet rule in Afghanistan, for example, in the 1970s with very strict secular instructions, created a threat 
whereby people and mo people mobilized in resistance. So I wonder if some of it is sort of, you know, people Muslims feeling under threat by more secular practices. Um, that could be. It. I mean, that that might be an explanation as to why, right? Um, again, sort of like my book isn't trying to sort of my argument isn't trying to explain why societies may become sort of more religious and sort of in, and then pass laws that might. Um, you know, penalized sort of non-Muslim practice. That's not what I'm sort of interested in. Sort of, I'm sort of interested in like how is there forms of governance. So, you know, if Indonesia, for instance, as a result of this sort of uh, backlash and uh, the, uh, individuals becoming more uh, religious, if they then decide to sort of become more authoritarian and get rid of their sort of um, elections and things like that, and they reverted back to authoritarianism, then then that would sort of be sort of within the purview of what I'm trying to argue, right? Um, it's quite possible, you know, like backlash occurs in many societies, it's not necessarily just like these Muslim societies yeah, where uh, uh, you would sort of see a, a rise in sort of, you know, religious fervor or something like that. Okay, okay. So wait, I, I want to understand. Okay, so what do you think are the policy implications? Okay, so let's take Pakistan, right? What do you think are the implications of your work if you wanted to build democratization in Pakistan? Like, what is your message to the Democrats in Pakistan? Yeah, so the one sort of central takeaway would be, so the the book has a discussion of sort of non-Muslim societies, so thinking about in, in Eastern Europe and in Latin America. And they also went through periods in which they experienced a decline in, in rents. Um, but they transitioned to sort of more democratic forms of governance, right? And the argument in the book is that these societies had, at the time of these transitions, more cohesive uh, institutions, right? Um, my book makes the argument that these institutions tend to be sticky, but doesn't mean that they can't be changed, right? And so uh, one implication that you could take is that if Pakistan moves towards having making institutional changes now that um, are able to sort of, you know, redistribute government revenue in a more equitable way, then when they do experience periods of a decline in external financing and whatnot, they're less likely to break out into um, uh, conflict. Now, I'm, one of the difficulties about Pakistan is that it's still very regionally based, right? The, you know, Punjabis don't get along with other groups of the thing, uh, citizens in the rest of the country, right? And so politicians have to make a conscious choice of coming up with maybe institutions or rules that more equitably distribute uh, government resources, right? Um, I mean, one of the takeaways that I talk about at the end of the book is that um, if nothing changes in these societies, especially especially in uh, many uh, oil-rich countries, um, when you know, rents decline as societies move away from fossil fuels, those rents are going to start to dry up. And you can imagine then, then there'll be sort of more political contestation and you might actually see more outbreaks of violence, right? So um, if these societies are able to, in this period now, come up with more equitable ways of distributing state resources, then maybe when uh, they do experience crisis, they're not prone to sort of have experiences of, uh, of violence. I think one could building on your argument you could make a case about why totalitarian communism was you know didn't have any of these outbreaks in central asia right because you know because everyone was in a a very a relatively flat situation a very low inequality and very little tribal tribalism or competition then that sort of trump 
suppressed the tribal conflicts, whereas ethnic politics only emerged afterwards. And tri like I think after the fall of the USSR, then you saw a rise in cousin marriage in you know many of the valley regions because people wanted to solidify those links. Do you think one of your arguments is that like is communism a good idea for Pakistan? That's a joke. But don't you think the book has these implications that communism is a way of like flattening things? I mean, there is a, I mean, a, there is a literature talking about how, you know, when you have more equal societies, right, in the terms of, you know, income uh, distribution that, um, you know, they're less prone to violence or uh, when, when they experience economic crisis, right? So to the extent that communism achieves that, then then that would be a good thing. I'm not sort but of advocating the, it, obviously. But yes, like, yes, yes. Uh, but do you think there's uh, any but, way to get to that more equal distribution? Like, I think, you know, you and I would agree that there's sort of a negative feedback loop, that where you have these tribal confederations or clan-based loyalties, then everyone is grabbing and, and wants the resources for their own group. And if any group dominates the politics, they tend to enrich their own. And it's very difficult then to get to a more egalitarian system of material distribution. And without that, is, is there any way you think, or, or any evidence in global history where you've seen sort of that being overcome? Um, so sometimes, you know, like societies have to go through violence to achieve that distribution, right? But uh, other sort of examples of example would where be... that's <sighs> Not any sort of... So like... Many African countries, for instance, at, at, for, at, for, for instance, at the end of the Cold War, had outbreaks of violence, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they went through, you know, civil war, and they sort of, rec you know, through the violence, they sort of came to some sort of political equilibrium um, where there was resolution and then the societies became more equal. So uh, other examples would be sort of, um, sort of land reform, that we sort of saw in many East Asian countries um, that sort of facilitated their sort of economic growth, right? Um, and so you can imagine if like, so Pakistan never did any of that, right? Um, and so it's still very sort of, they're big land holders yeah. who also tend to be involved in politics. Um, oh, we and so you can imagine you. if there was land reform that sort of redistributed the rents that way, Faisal, then you sort of We've would... lost you. Faisal, can you repeat yourself? I just, it just cut out briefly. Can you repeat what you just said, please? Yeah, so um, uh, imagine if there was sort of land reform um, in Pakistan. Um, yes. That might be a way of sort of redistributing income in a way that's more equitable, and so you'd have less inequality, um, and that might be beneficial for thinking about cohesive uh, institutions and things like that, right? Um, and so some societies have done that. Um, South Korea did that. Taiwan did that. And those are conscious sort of decisions, right? Often that was sort of imposed by outsiders. So in the case of South Korea and Taiwan, that was, uh, you know, Japanese imperial rule during World War II. Um, so it's possible, it's, it, but it's tricky. It's, it's, it's difficult. Um, I, well, I, I'm not sure I agree entirely, but let me give you one example. I want to give you a success story. Tunisia, until very recently, until maybe the last two, two years, you know, Tunisia had the very first uh, secular college in the Arab world. It was like a military academy that it was, I think, in reaction to French aggression and French attacks. They built this secular college, the Sadiqi College. And they built a military academy, and then you had a number of, and then many of the uh, Tunisian elites, they went to these secular French schools, and thereafter they were 
strong and the sort of more secular side won out in the po in the independence struggles and then in the post in the independence period they really the the leaders increasingly championed secular schooling getting religion out of uh, you know getting you know encouraging open debate like there's an analysis of tunisian textbooks and they they teach religion as, like from the perspective of social science not like saying you know this is the one view of islam but rather this is how people practice it and here's another option and so until maybe the past two years i think tunisia scores has scored the highest in the middle east and north africa for being especially secular more democratic more open so i think tunisia could be is perhaps one one of the most positive case well, i'm sorry i shouldn't say positive that's normative one of the mo more showing that some kind of democratization is possible even within the places conquered by islamic armies yeah, I mean, like, I mean, Pakistan's also in a case of this, right, where that they have periods of democracy, but they cycle back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the book recognizes this sort of like there are periods in which some of these societies do transition to democracy. It's not like it doesn't. But in many instances, those tend to be quite brittle, right? So you see episodes of democracy, and then you can kind of see a backsliding towards sort of more authoritarian forms of rule, right? Um, and so, you know, these processes are hard to consolidate in many respects, right? So, you know, with your example, for instance, with Malaysia and Indonesia, where you see sort of this rise of a sort of, you know, more religious-minded sort of laws and stuff like that, that could be an avenue back towards sort of more authoritarian you know, you know, non-democratic types of politics, right? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think Tunisia is a good example, Pakistan, Bangladesh, another sort of example where you sort of see periods in which these countries make reforms that head, head in the direction of becoming more democratic, but then they might also go back to having more military-based rule and sort of less uh, um, uh, democratic forms of governance. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so those are all my questions. I want to thank you again for joining us because I really think your book is so brilliant. Not just because I really think your book is the first in the world to explain the heterogeneity, to explain why Indonesia is democratic, why Somalia is in civil war, and why uh, Saudi Arabia is so authoritarian. It's just very, very clever to highlight this initial heterogeneity and contemporary heterogeneity. So I want to say bravo, bravo. Thank you. Thank you, Alice. Um, so, everyone, the book you can buy is called Conquest and Rents by Professor Faisal Ahmed. Uh, Faisal Ahmed, thank you very much for joining us. Great. Thank you so much, Alice. Okay, I've stopped it. Perfect.